Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Uh, As we get started this morning, I wanted to ask you... uh, we just finished the Olympics a week and a half ago. Did you catch much of the Olympics? Did you see that? It, I mean, in some ways, it felt like it was destined to fail from the beginning, whether it was COVID or a tsunami. Like, somebody did not want the Olympics to take place. But my family loved watching it, and my dad was recording it and putting it on a server so we could watch it, like, during the day and not during the middle of the night and whenever we wanted. And we loved catching on the events. What's your favorite Olympic event? Someone says swimming. I got that. Gymnastics. No one said the marathon. The marathon may not be the most exciting one to watch. What are they? They just, they just do this, right? Um, I am super impressed, though, by the way, side note, I didn't know there was a swimming marathon. Those people are unbelievable. I, I, I cannot imagine swimming for that long. But I did catch up on a story surrounding the women's marathon at the Olympics that I just found absolutely mind-blowing and fascinating. I don't know if you, you heard this story, but there was a lot of planning that went into the Olympic marathon, and they had decided with the expected weather conditions, they needed to move the marathon from Tokyo to Sapporo, which is a higher elevation. The weather's just a little bit cooler there. Like it started at 78 in the morning with 82% humidity, but it got up to 100 with that humidity before the race was over, that kind of weather. And the weather was worse than they had expected. They redesigned the race when they moved it and tried to include as much shade as possible from buildings and trees and just anything, a sign, anything that had shade, they wanted it on the route. Uh, Right before the event, like days before, they rescheduled it to start earlier in the morning, which everyone was like, well, okay, I guess so. But they started at 6 a.m. instead of the scheduled time, all in an effort to try to have better conditions and set the best stage for the athletes to perform on. So there were, there were three winners, two from Kenya, won the gold and the, and the silver. The bronze was won by an American named Molly Seidel. And I only mention her because Molly Seidel, when she ran this race at the Olympics, it was only her third marathon she had ever run in her life. Yeah. Her first marathon, full marathon she had ever run was in the qualifying event, the first qualifying event for the Olympics. Like my mind is blown by this woman. And I'm also encouraged because I've never run a marathon and I think I have a very good chance of meddling in 2024. (laughs) Have you run a marathon before? No. Randy says no, I have not. They seem incredibly tough. And the one at this year's Olympics was uh, even tougher than usual because of the extreme conditions. Like I said, when they started off, it was 78 degrees with 82% humidity. We're in Texas. We're like, no big deal. But then it was like 100 with that kind of humidity, and it is a big deal. And the racers were wearing hats and sunglasses, and I think there were nine or 11 uh, water stations along the way. And every time they got to water stations, they were grabbing, grabbing ice packs and stuffing them in their shirts trying to stay cool. And one of the things that commentators talked about is how the runners in the women's marathon kept moving over to the shady areas and running at a cautious pace 
in the shady areas, and, and it slowed the whole race down quite a bit. It was one of the slowest times of record on the Olympic marathon as it bogged down in the shady areas. Uh, and one of the wild things as you watch this race unfold is 15 of the entrants. These are the best of the best at running marathons in the entire world. 15 of them didn't even finish the race, which is, I mean, if you're at the Olympics and you don't finish, it's astounding. When you think about marathons, there's always a first, second, third, but th finishing the race is the goal. And if you know someone who's run a marathon, they're running to get a medal that says on it, finisher, right? You have friends who've run marathons. They put them in frames. They hang them in their offices or in their home. And it's a medal that simply says, finisher. That's the goal of the race. Well, at this Olympic marathon, as these runners kept moving to the shady areas and slowing down and bogging down, there was a New York Times headline, and it said this, the runners best able to handle the brutal conditions prevailed, right? In other words, those who refused to move to the shady areas and slow down, but pressed on in the open sun were the ones who won the race. I'm going to make a spiritual analogy, of course, right? That's... That's what I'm here to do today, not to comment on the Olympics. And it's this, when we read the New Testament, you find often that the Christian life is compared to that of running a race. Yeah? I'll give you some examples, a couple examples. Acts 20, 24, Paul says this as he's speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church near the end of Paul's life. He says, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying the good news of God's grace. That's his race that he's running to the end. First Corinthians 9, Paul writes this, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. No, I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do just what it should because he's concerned that his life and actions would match, would have integrity with his words and the message that he preaches. I'll give you one more. Author of Hebrews says, let us lay aside every encumbrance, everything that might slow us down or hold us back, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Here's my spiritual analogy to the Olympic marathon. It's in that New York Times line that said the runners who were best able to handle the brutal conditions of the race set before them and not shrink into the shady spots and slow down are the ones who won the race, okay? Last week we studied, um, we opened the study of the book of 1 John. You all remember this if you were with us. What we found is that these are churches in the area of Ephesus and these churches were being torn apart by both fighting inside the church and oppression from outside the church. And it all had to do with misconceptions and misunderstandings about what the gospel is and how we're to live out the gospel, what that looks like. And there were culture wars and families were being torn apart over these things. There were all kinds of voices claiming to be true, claiming to know truth, but they were in contradiction with each other and they kept moving the line around for what it means to be a Christian. And so these people are under extreme pressure and don't really know what to think. 
And we ask the question, well, how then were they supposed to know and how are we supposed to know in similar conditions what we're talking about when we think about the church or what we think about Christianity? How do we know if we're on the right track? And we found John writing to them in chapter 1, teaching them that you know that you're on the right track when it comes to Christianity and the church, when what you think of first isn't politics, it's not moralism, it's not just a style or a brand of life, but instead it's about the real Jesus who lives, who died, who resurrected, who forgives, who gives life. If you're thinking about Him and Him as the real solution to the real sin problem, then you know, that's how you know that you're on the right track. And last week in in chapter 1, verse 5, we saw this line. I want to read it again to you. John said, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all, none. And then John challenges the people of these churches. He says, God is light, no darkness at all, so let us all walk in the light of God. And that's another picture that we get in the Bible of the Christian life. It's a race that we run, but it's not run alone. We walk with Jesus Christ. And the Christian life is learning not to just go through your life and plow through it, but to walk through your life with Jesus, learning from Him, trusting Him, depending on Him through everything that we face in this life. And John, in what we'll read today, keeps contrasting walking in light versus walking in dark. Walking in the light of God versus walking in the darkness. And he equates walking in the light with walking with a mind and a heart for the will and the way of God. And he equates walking in the dark with just going through your life and living how you you feel you should or you desire to or someone tells you to with no regard for the will or the way of God. That's how John will use this. And so today for us, a question that we're going to try to understand, but there's a couple of questions. The first one is this. You listening? Why would a person who has been brought out into the light of God, who's been given a taste of freedom from sin and an experience with abundant life, why would a person who has experienced something like that turn back and begin to walk in the shadows? Because it happens. Why would, why would we do that? It's happening in Ephesus. It's happening now. I think the answer is because sometimes it's really difficult to run out in the heat of day, right? Sometimes it's really hard to run in the light. And in fact, I think sometimes we move to the dark because we think we'll find comfort in the dark. Or we think that we can find protection or we can be hidden in the dark or in the dark we can do whatever we want to do without worry about what God says. Or in the dark we don't have to do some things that we know God has called us to do, but if I'm over here maybe no one's noticing that I'm not doing those things. And so when I look at this text, I consider how is it In my life that I see sometimes, though I've been brought out into the light, I I move into the shade and the dark. You want to see how this works? It works if you take any social issue that we've experienced in our life, in this nation, even in the last couple of years, and you just apply it there. Like you take racial tensions and debates over is racism real or not and does it exist or not. You take sexual ethics, you take politics, you take pandemic, you take any personal issue you face and ask yourself the question, Have I, in the face of those things, been tempted to 
move over and hide in the shadows rather than being out in the middle of those debates and expose myself to the heat and the possibility of getting burnt. Have we felt that temptation to go, you know what, I'm not going to speak out, I'm not going to jump out, I'm not going to get involved because it's just too hot out there. These are too hot of, of issues for me to live out there with them. And what happens is like in that marathon, we begin to cluster in the dark, and there in the dark we commit sins, whether well, sins of omission and sins of commission. What I mean by sins of omission is where we hide there and we don't do the things that God has called us to do. We don't fight for justice and speak for justice where there is injustice, or we don't speak the truth in love to people when God has called us to do that. Sins of omission, but we also have sins of commission where we go and we speak the truth with no love. Or we go and we have all the grace and all the love in the world. We just, all you need is love with no mind for truth at all, which is never loving to not share the truth with people, right? And you apply it over and over again in any situation you face where you go, there is a way. God has said, this is how we should go. But you go, I just, I don't want to go there. Why would a person who has been brought out into the light move back and run in the dark? Well, because sometimes it's really hot and you can get burnt if you're exposed to the light. So we're tempted to run to the dark and that's what's happening with the church here in Ephesus. When I read John's letter here, I feel his care for them. I feel his compassion on them. I feel his empathy for them. John loves them. He has been their pastor He has known them intimately. He's rooting for them. He's rooting that they would grow in Christ and experience abundant life in Him. He's rooting that they would walk in the light, even if it causes them at times to be exposed to the heat of the burning sun, which, by the way, the Christian life does cause us to walk in the heat of difficult situations. Jesus said that. He said, in this world you have many troubles. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus said, look, the world hasn't known me, hasn't understood me, has hated me. If you're my family, well, you're going to experience some of that for yourself. If you walk with Jesus, it does get hot sometimes. It requires that. But John knows even so it is best for them and it glorifies God most if they would walk in the light. He's rooting for them. And I don't just see his feelings like I share his feelings. When I think about you, I go, I'm rooting for you. When I think about you, I'm rooting for you. Everything I'm doing and praying is with the hope that you would grow up in him and that you would walk in the light. And though it may be hard, that you would experience the joy of your father's love and his grace as you cling near to him, even in the toughest spots of your life. I hope and I pray that for you. So open your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2 if you haven't yet. The first line of chapter 2 grabs my attention immediately. John says something that sounds absolutely audacious, yet it's here. He says very clearly that we don't have to sin. We don't have to. Now, in chapter 1, he said, if you say that you have no sin, what did he say? Yeah, you're lying. You're lying to yourself. So everyone sins period. But he says we don't have to remain in sin. It shouldn't be normative. It shouldn't be the normal pattern of our life that we walk in darkness. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. Y'all say this with me. So that you may not sin. 
so that you may not sin. He says it's possible. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. You may not walk in the darkness. And the secret to this is in the word keep. And you're going to see that word several times here. He says it's that we would keep walking in the light. But I'll, I'll admit to you now that it's, it's really hard for me to even be honest with myself sometimes or to really understand or have clear perspective about myself and how I'm doing at walking in the light. Remember Jeremiah 17 says, the heart's a deceitful thing. It's, it's full of sickness and who can understand it? And that's how I feel a lot of time when I'm trying to be honest about my faith and about my life. So John, he does the Ephesian church a favor and we're the beneficiaries of it. We get benefit of the favor he does to the Ephesian churches. He gives them a way of assessing their walk with the Lord. He gives them a, a spiritual health inventory, a test. And there are actually three tests here in chapter 2. And school just started for my kids this week. I know that we don't like tests, right? And the reason that we don't like tests is because we think very negatively of tests. We think that they are there to shame us or to make us feel bad, to oppress us and prove how dumb we are. That's how I have often received tests that are given to me. But we know if we're honest and quiet for a minute, the tests aren't there to shame us, but they're there to reveal to us areas where we can still grow and where we still have potential to learn. That's what tests are for. And John gives three spiritual life tests that will help us. You know, the, the Apostle Paul thought tests were important. He said in 2 Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. And I want to show you the message paraphrase of this because I think it's beautiful. Test yourselves to make sure you're solid in the faith. Don't drift along taking everything for granted. Give yourself regular checkups. You need firsthand evidence, not mere, hear mere say that Jesus Christ is in you. Take, test it out. If you fail the test, do something about it. I hope, Paul says, that the test won't show that we have failed, and he's talking about his ministry failing them. But if it comes to that, we'd rather the test showed our failure than yours. We're rooting for the truth to win out in you. That's the kind of test that I can get on board with. Like, that's a spiritual life test that I'm really interested in taking because it's not about judgment, it's about encouragement. You see that? Okay, so how do we, how do we check the truth about our, our walk? Um, how do we know if we're walking or running in the light or in the dark? Well, there's three tests here, and they all start with the same four words. It's in your text. The one who says, the one who says, it's stuff that Christians say that reveal to us how our spiritual health is or how we're doing in our walk with the Lord. If you look at verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9, you could just circle or underline uh, those four words in each of those places. The one who says, verse 4, verse 6, verse 9, they're the three tests that John recommends, and it's what we're going to look at here. How do we check the truth about our walk with the Lord? How do we really understand if we're walking in the light or walking in the dark? John says this, if I want to understand how I'm doing in my walk with the Lord, first I need to assess my attitude. Look at verse 3. I need to assess my attitude toward godly obedience. By this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Y'all say these four words with me. Ready? The one who says, it's our first test, 
The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. Now, that last word is perfected, but I want to be really clear that it's not talking about perfectionism. It's not saying that you and I can do everything in our ability. If we put our mind to it and apply ourselves, we can be perfect. I need to make sure you're clear on this too. There's nothing that you could do to ever be saved. There's nothing in your strength or in your knowledge or in your will or in your might that you could do by perfect obedience to save yourself. We would always fall short. We're saved by faith. By grace through faith in Jesus who was obedient to the point of death on a cross. We're saved by his obedience, not by our obedience. John said the word keep is important. He uses this word keep over and over again. He doesn't say the one who does God's commandments or the one who doesn't do God's commandments. He says the one who keeps God's commandments is who he's talking about. And to keep God's commandments, this is the person who treasures God's will and his way so much that they just can't leave it alone. There's no way I would leave this over here and go aside from it because they see it as infinitely valuable that God would share his mind and his heart and his power with us to help us walk through this life. I mean, most of us are looking for blogs and podcasts to help us through the issues we're facing, but God has said, I will be your help. I'll share my knowledge and my care and my strength with you. The one who keeps God's commandments is the one who says, that is the most amazing thing ever. That God wouldn't leave me alone, but he would walk with me through everything. My goodness, I will never take my eyes off of what God has said. They watch God's will and his ways. They desire to know God's will and his ways, and they want to be obedient to him. It's not legalism. It's not, did I check it off the box? Did I do everything that God told me to do today? Is there anything left undone that God has called me to do? It's not that, but it's about really, really believing deep down that God knows more, that he, he sees more of what's going on in your mind, in your heart, in your life, in the world around you, that God sees it. He understands it better than you or I do, or someone who wrote a book, or someone who's on TV. He really understands a thing, and he has the power and ability to transform a thing, and he loves more than anyone else who's giving you advice in this life. And so when God says, Kevin, this is the way you should go. Church, this is the way that you should live. This is, these are the standards that you should live by. These are the directions that you should take. This is my word. This is my will. This is my way for you. Walk in my ways. He says it based upon his greater knowledge that he knows more than you know. Based on his understanding that he understands the human situation and all of the complexities of life and where it's all heading. And he says it, go in this way based upon his greater love for you. That he wants for you greater than you could ever want for yourself. And so the person who keeps God's commandment is the person who goes, yeah, I really believe. God knows what's going on. He sees it. He understands it. And he wants what's best for me. So I will walk in his ways. And John says, if Jesus has gained control of your heart, you're going to come to desire to do 
what God says to do. That real faith always leads to a real desire for obedience. And by the way, real obedience always manifests itself in a heart that says yes to God. It comes out in a heart that wants to say yes to God. That's the attitude that John's describing that's seen in the Christian who walks in the light. It's more than just did I obey the commands of God? And did I break any of the, the commandments? No, it's about a holy desire that's growing in us that we, we really des- we want to walk in the light. And it's a good question to ask ourselves. Do I have an attitude that reflects that? Do, do I have an attitude in me that begrudgingly obeys God? An attitude in me that says, well, it's the thing I, I must do. Is it an attitude that says, well, look, look how well I've done it? Or do we have an attitude that really desires, that really wants to be walking closely with the Lord and walking in obedience? Am I I really ready to have a relationship with God that is growing in trust in such a way that I'm relying on Him and I'm ready to accept Jesus' full lordship over my life? That's why this is a really good test, because it it reveals to me how my walk is going each day. If I'm walking apart from God, I'm not growing a desire for obedience. If I'm walking in darkness, there is not a day-by-day greater desire and appreciation for what has God said. That's the thing that I want to do. But if I'm walking closely with Christ, I'm knowing Him more day by day. I'm growing in His likeness more and more day by day. And so I'm growing to trust the things that He said are right and good and perfect and should be followed. And I want to follow Him. So John says, look, if you want to know how your walk's doing, number one, you need to assess your attitude towards godly obedience. There's a second assessment here. It starts in verse 6. First four words, you'll say it with me. Ready? The one who says, it's our test, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. This says I need to assess my actions. Not just my attitude towards obedience, but my specific actions. Are they Christ-like? It's where my walk and my talk coincide. Basically, it's if I go around saying I'm a Christian, I darn well better look a lot like Jesus, right? In in fact, did you know that's how the word Christian first came into use? The term was first used in Antioch because there were people over this, this place called Antioch had people from all different areas, all different ethnicities, all different value systems, all different philosophies were thrown together in Antioch. And among uh, the people of Antioch from different ethnic groups and from different moral backgrounds and different spiritual backgrounds and different, you know, this is how we behave, this is what we eat, well, no, this is how we behave and how we speak. From among all of the diverse peoples of Antioch, people from those communities began to come together. And the only way to categorize them, they no longer were, were looking like the, the people group they came from. They now only looked like, well, kind of like that guy Jesus. I mean, they talk like him. They're always talking about what he said and did. I mean, but they, they act like him. The stories say that he was like this. And good grief, that, that's what they value and how they live, we'll call them. And it wasn't a compliment at that time, by the way. We'll call them Christians. Those silly people in Antioch. Now, before you go, well, you know, I live like Jesus. 
You know, I, I, I read some things and, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good with Jesus, truth and grace and all that kind of stuff. I have learned over time that people love to reframe Jesus. They, they love to refocus him, to reconstitute Jesus, something more into their image or the image that they want him in rather than being transformed into his image. I'll give you some examples. Have you heard of Republican Jesus? Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to offend you. Have you heard of Democrat Jesus? There's gay Jesus, there's gun-toting Jesus, there's truth-spitting Jesus. You heard of that one? There's racist Jesus, there's angry Jesus, there's uh, open-border Jesus and closed-border Jesus. I mean, these people are espousing these things out there. People are constantly reconstituting, reshaping, reforming Jesus into something like what they already are or what they want him to be, but not who he actually is. But I'm with John I like OG Jesus. I like the original Jesus, right? I like the Bible Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, who conspired with the Trinity to leave heaven and come to earth to deal with our sins. I love the Jesus who looked down on humanity and saw our depravity and our helplessness to save ourselves and said, I got to do something about that. I like the Jesus who came and lived a fully human life. That means he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, yet he did not sin. I love the Jesus who in that condition, being completely sinless, owing nothing to nobody, according to the plan and the will of God, sacrificed himself on the cross for the sins of the world. I love that Jesus who came to deal with my sin because he was full of grace. He's full of truth and neither one of those things ever compromised each other. I love that Jesus. The Bible calls him the author and the perfecter of my faith. It calls him the great atoner. It calls him the only and exclusive intermediary between me and God. It says he is the way, the truth, and the life. And it says he's coming again and I can't wait till he appears. And day by day, my desire for his appearing grows. I love that Jesus, the real biblical Jesus. And that's the one that John says that I'm supposed to live like. Verse 6, we ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. It's a pretty high bar. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean that I'm going to live exactly like him and do everything that he did perfectly. But it says I ought to. We ought to walk in the manner as he walked. You remember my, my favorite Bible verse? I share it pretty often with you. Galatians 2.20. Remember this verse? It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me, right? This tells me that the Christian life isn't about impersonations. Being a good Christian, walking in the light, isn't about doing an impersonation of Jesus. It's not about impersonating a Christian leader, a Christian influencer. I can't even talk about that. It's, it's not about trying to impersonate your parents' faith. It's not about trying to impersonate a particular church or denomination and their style of life. It's not about trying to impersonate the image that someone else has given you of a Christian who's sitting around the room. It's about Jesus living in you and through you. It's about his supernatural life being lived out through your life. And John uses the word here, abide, in verse 6. Do you see that? 
You might highlight that or circle that. When John uses the word abide, I'm, I'm dead sure about this. He's thinking back to a moment when he was sitting at the feet of Jesus and Jesus was teaching the disciples. John 15, he wrote about it in his gospel. It's where Jesus talked about abiding in him. And he said, you're like the branches and I'm, I'm the vine and you abide in me, I abide in you. When you abide in me, you rely on me, you depend on me, even through all of the tough things in life. Well, that is how you can begin to live like me. That is how I live through you. And John's reflecting on this as he's writing to them. And he says, we got to abide in him and live like him. And he's not saying that we need to go out and try to do miracles. I did, you know, in February, walk on water. I don't know if anyone saw that picture. It's when we had the freeze and my pool froze completely over and I walked straight across it. And it was a very biblical moment. John's not saying we should walk around performing miracles, but he's implying, and we're going to keep reading and see this, he's saying that we sure well ought to be loving like Jesus and loving what Jesus loves. First test was I need to assess my attitude towards obedience, and then it's I need to assess my actions. Do I really look like Jesus in the way that I act? If I claim to be a Christian, I darn well better be looking like him. Third test. It's in uh, verses 7 through 11. He says, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but a, a very old commandment which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. And then he flips it. He says, Well, you know, on the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you in a way. It's true in him and true in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Let's pause there. Back in verse 3. We found the word commandment, and it was commandments. It was plural, and it was talking about, in general, the will and the way of God in every facet of your life, in every detail of your existence. But here, it's singular, and it's talking about one commandment, which is really, Jesus said, it's two commandments. It is two sides of one coin. Do you remember when the guy says to Jesus, Jesus, what is the one most important commandment among them all? How did Jesus reply? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Seconds like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, and this is huge, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. If you could take all of the will and way of of God and reduce them down and say, if you cover this, you're going to end up covering everything else rightly. It would be love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You do that, the rest is going to fall into place. So John says, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. It's an old commandment. You've heard it from the beginning. That means the commandment to love is, it's, it's really old. In fact, John will make this famous statement in a little while in like chapter four where he says, God is love. So we know that love is as old as God and we know that in, in Genesis 1.27, it says that we are created in God's image. So if God is love and we are made in his image, then from our very moment of creation, we're to be beings that love. Think about this. Creation itself was born out of the Trinity's love, out of the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It overflowed 
that humanity might be the recipients and the sharers of divine love. And then from the very first moments, God was training humanity, teaching humanity to be beings that do love and show love. And then when it came to the, the Ten Commandments, he said outright, you must love. And so John says, I'm not writing a new commandment. I'm writing a very old commandment. But on, on the other hand, verse 8, I'm writing a new commandment to you. And it's new Because you've seen it in him, it's true in him, and now it's true in you who believe in him, who have trusted in him. And what he means is that people have known love for a long time on this earth, but they've never known love like this until Jesus came and expressed it. That love is deepened, it's strengthened, it's fortified, it's expanded in the experience that a person whose soul has been entrusted to Christ has on this earth. It changes the way we see love and the way that we do love. In other words, if you view and do love in the same way that the world in general views love and does love, that's not, that's not of Christ. That's just the general humans trying to scratch at something that Jesus opened and unlocked and revealed for real for us and made possible for us to share in. Verse 9 through 11 applies this. So we're talking about love, verses 8 uh, eight and seven and eight, and verse nine through eleven is our test. Two cases: the person who loves and the person who hates. And John sees these like light and dark. There's no in between. We got to assess our affections. Verse nine. Say it with me. Ready? The one who says he is in the light, yet he hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because, listen to this, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to people who are not a part of the church. He's writing to Christians and says, though you have been brought out into the light, if you hate your brother, it's evidence that your eyes have been blinded to the light. Hate in all of its forms, in all of its degrees, is evidence of blindness towards the light of God. If you claim to be a Christian, but you're not a part of a church because you love Jesus, but you don't love the church, you don't pass this test, right? Hear this, this is going to be hard to hear. If you hate your brother or you hold on to, remember that word keep? If you keep bitterness in your heart towards another person, a believer, another person who has hurt you or or disappointed you, if you hold on to that bitterness and anger and hate, you don't pass this test. If you hold on to racist beliefs, if you're a person who goes into the world and segregates and divides by any distinction the world would put on us, There's evidence here, enough evidence, that would say you don't walk in the light of God, that you've moved into the shadows. Hate, in all of its forms and degrees, is evidence of blindness towards the light of God. Now, on the other hand, love. Love is evidence that sight has been given to the blind. It is the gift, the miraculous gift that comes with new birth. Love. And I didn't mean it comes easy, right? Loving others can be very difficult and painful because others have the capacity to fail us, to disappoint us, to have ingratitude, to be untrustworthy at times. Loving 
others will test our faith. It will fatigue us. It will include us reaching out and embracing and having a relationship with people who are unlike us in the way that we look or the way that we think or the way that we speak. Love does that. It's my opinion that we need to put the spine back in the word love. Love is not a flimsy or sentimental word. It's been made that, but love is gritty. Grit's one of my favorite words, and the church needs to learn it. Love is powerful. Love is full of sacrifice and hard work and pain and endurance and victory. We need to put spine back on the word love. And John says when we walk in the light of God, we need to love like Jesus loves. And when he does this, he he says love and hate is like light and dark, like there's no in between and they don't mix with each other. You can't hold on to hate. You can't hold on to distrust and disregard and judgment and anger if the love of Christ has consumed you. Those things can't coexist in in your life. You may feel those emotions towards people. I do at times. I I feel angry at people. I I distrust people. I, I, I have moments where I disregard people's emotions. They're not the most important thing at that moment, and I blow them off. That happens. But when that happens, I have to recognize that selfishness is at work or short sightedness is at work, ultimately, that sin is at work. And I must refuse to allow that to drive me into the shadows where I would walk in the dark and commit sins of omission or or commission, right? Refuse and bounce back into the light when I feel and experience those things. John says, when we walk in the light of God, we love like Jesus loves. How did he love? Well, when his disciples, his closest followers, constantly were bickering and fighting and missing the point of everything and disappointing him, he was patient and he didn't stop loving them. How did Jesus love? Well, he was full of grace and full of generosity and full of compassion. And anyone with the need, he, would, he was stopping. Even when he had nothing, no energy left, he hadn't slept, he hadn't eaten, he had no place to lay his head yet. One person turned to him and said, help me, Lord. And he turned to them and he helped. He was called a friend of sinners. He put others' needs ahead of his own, even to the point of death on a cross, and John says, that's the standard. (laughs) John says, that's how my life should look in the days that I have on this earth. And if this passage is is true, and it is, by the way, I just want to go ahead and clear that up. He said, if this passage is true, then I need to I need to assess myself. I need to apply the assessments for myself. I need to give John's assessment access to my life, to my daily living, and to the issues that I'm facing right now. Tests can be hard. It can be uncomfortable at times. Maybe, maybe it's just an encouragement this morning. You go, God. Lord, I've I've been coming low. You've been teaching me brokenness and humility. And today I'm full of gratitude because I can see how you're changing me, how you're transforming me. Because I, I know if six months ago or a year ago or five years ago, if I took this assessment, oh, I would have, I would have scored differently than I, I am today. Lord, thank you. And some of you take it and you go, oh, but there's still such a long way to go. 
And Lord, you're showing me areas where I still need to learn to trust you. Look, if you feel low when you take an assessment like this, all you need to do is turn to Jesus, who not only passed all three tests with flying colors, but he died and he resurrected, he ascended, he poured out his spirit, creating a new humanity called the church. He gives you a new heart. So turn to Jesus. Come into the light and experience freedom from the dark. Walk in the light and experience abundant life, which isn't always easy. And these days, like that, that passage about the running, disciplining my body, we press on in the light of day. Experiencing the joy of not running alone, but walking closely with our God, who though sometimes the sun is hot, is with us and he brings us comfort, brings us peace, he shows us truth. And one day he does return. And on that day, all who are in him will rejoice and all will know that he is King of kings and Lord of lords and we all will give him glory. Turn to Jesus today. That's the application. Can I pray for you? Pray for me. Father, this morning, we come, the people confessing our need for you. And some days it's easy to say, Lord, I need you every hour I need you. And some days we forget. And so, Lord, in light of the truth of your word this morning, would you help us to see ourselves rightly, that we might walk in the joy and, and peace of faithful obedience to Christ? Would you make us day by day more and more like your son who loved with such a great love it overturned the world? And would you use us, Lord, to bring others still to your son while there's still time? Lord, may we be a people of the light. In Jesus' name, amen.